Uh, welcome and good afternoon here. We're being joined by Keith Midnick, lead trial counsel from Morgan & Morgan in Orlando, Florida. Keith, welcome to the, back to our podcast. It's great. Hey, hey I always like doing it with you. You know, Keith, last time where we left off on the book, please, or no, I was going to say, please don't eat the daisies, but <laughs> don't eat the bruises, which is the number one seller on uh, trial guides. It's the most sold book. It's had to be reprinted on multiple occasions. And for those of you that aren't big readers, Keith just read the whole book for over 20 some hours and that'll be coming out soon. So as you drive, you can listen to Keith and be inspired. So Keith, in the book, there were two parts to the book, I, the way I read it. And it was about winning at the beginning with Ford Dyer, which we talked about last time. And the other part was opening statement. Did I read it right? You read it. Well, it covers from A to Z, the whole trial up to closing argument, cross exam, but kind of the backbone of it is what I call winning at the beginning, which is uh, you got to get rid of jury bias, which is the Vordire that we covered last time you had me on your show. And I figured maybe we'd talk this time about the second part, which is uh, how to use opening statements to make sure you're out ahead. Because if you're not ahead, you're in all likelihood, you can't play catch up. You better come out of the blocks ahead. Now, Keith, I, I remember as a young lawyer hearing guys give speeches about jurors make up their minds right away. And there was a study, I don't know if it was a Purdue or some university where it said a certain percentage of jurors make up their mind opening statement after the opening statement. Are you familiar with that research? I am. And I'm not only familiar with it, I, I believe in it. I, Tell, I talk about the research. What does the research show? What it shows, it's interesting. They would question a, a, a lot of jurors and almost all of them would say they did not make up their mind after opening. They waited and made up their mind in closing. But they ask him a second question, and the second question is, which way were you leaning after opening? And with like a 98% uh, uh, accuracy, it was the same way they ended up deciding the case in closing. So they had made up their mind, but because the judge beats in their head, don't make up your mind, they felt compelled to say I hadn't. But the, the data showed they they certainly did make up their mind. Well, I always believe the case is over when you pick the jury because once you know who the people are, you already know how they're going to decide. But let's assume that they're they're keeping their oath and they're not making their decision to all the evidence in. How important to you is the opening statement? Well, my, I, I think opening statement, I, I obsess over opening statement. I, I agree with you. Put it this way. If we don't get the right jurors, it's over. I don't give a damn what my opening statement or anything else is. We get bad jurors. Assuming we get unbiased jurors, now we're in the game. I believe in opening statement that if you do it right, which to me right is more than just telling your story, it is telling your story that recognizes they've got a story to tell too, and you want to swallow whole their story while you're telling your story and leave nothing. And if you do that, if you leave them no free shots, then I think you're going to win the case if you if if jury selection went well. It's the the concepts this. So many lawyers forget this, and it's obvious, but they do. You don't get a rebuttal in opening, which means it's not good enough to pat yourself on the back after your opening, and then you're miserable after their opening. 
It's an only good enough opening when you're still patting yourself on the back when they're done and they sit down. Then you're winning at the beginning. So let's talk about that. Let's, let's just take a case. You get the case. You hadn't worked on the case yet. You have a file. You have depositions, discovery, investigation. Now you're going to put together your opening statement. And if you want, we let's use the framework. Let's just say a basic car crash case. Sure. What are you going to do? How are you going to go about preparing it? What do you, what do you, how do you do it? All right. For opening statement purposes, I always do this. Hell, I do it for Boyd Iron too. It's the beginning of the case for me. We all know this is the good part of my case. This is my winning core story. Then the next question becomes, if I were to lose this case, why am I going to lose it? Make me a list. When I come into the case before trial, I go to the lawyer who's worked it up. I said, I want a list. If we lose, it's going to be because one of these things. I call them the defense favorite facts. And we then design around the defense favorite facts our opening. So we've got the power of our story, but we're recognizing here's, here's where they're going to make headway and make damn sure they don't. Do you so, write it? Do you write it out? Do I write it out? No, I typically in an opening, I do a lot of writing. I use an erasable board and write like a mad scientist. I I'm email sorry. myself. I meant do you do you write it out before you give it? Do I write my opening out? No. What I do do is I design it in writing and then I create bullet points. Um, so I can start shuffling and make sure I like the sequencing of it. But I typically stand up and deliver it. Of course, you've got some visual aids going along with you that act like you wrote it out. But I'm not one of these people that actually sits and writes my whole opening out. So It's written, but it's written up here. Right. But you have the key segments, you might want to call them, where you could move, you know, the segment of... Uh who ran the light or the pre-existing, and you could just shift those around how you want to deliver it. So now you're going to give your opening statement. Do you use PowerPoint? I do. Um, I believe in them. Um, I, occasionally we run into situations where a judge says you can't show it if it isn't admitted into evidence and all that. And I'm just as happy, honestly, to go without it because I feel we're better at delivering it, relying on our selves as a visual aid, I'm the best visual aid in the courtroom, than a typical defense lawyer. They're lost without being able to show and tell. So, but given the preference, I'd rather be able to show. And I, I watched uh, and I read a transcript of a lawyer, a good friend of mine, Tom Klein's a great lawyer in Philadelphia, trying a mesh case. And what he did was he had a black screen and he would speak and as a specific exhibit, he would put it up and he would talk about it. He wouldn't do as I do, and I, I'm kind of getting away from it more, of a lot of words on the screen. And he wouldn't use it as a PowerPoint. It was more an ordering of the exhibits into his story. And I thought that was effective. I know lawyers get a little tied up in these PowerPoints and changing it. And if it doesn't work, then what are they going to do? And put jurors maybe not paying as much attention on them as the screen. So, so I think it's I totally agree with you. I, I have delivered openings that were pure PowerPoint driven and I've always felt my personality and my ability to, to hopefully lead the jury gets diminished some 
if anyone could have stood up there and pushed the button. So I think there's always that balance. I, I'm getting more there myself, and I think your ability to connect is not as good. And you're, if you're worried about a slide and remember what was on that slide or changing the slide and what's the next slide, you're not focusing on connecting to individual jurors, and I think that takes away some. No, no question. That has been the exact internal intuitive feeling I've had when I've been overly married to the PowerPoint. And to your point of simplifying the message instead of not being too wordy on the PowerPoint, um, I, I sue cigarette companies, and they're they're one of the most uh, powerful litigation defense machines in history because they do it so often. They have endless resources. And one thing I've learned from them is their visual aids are very rudimentary. They're just basic. They're stick figures and things. And they'll have one word up. And they, they rarely have something where you're reading across. And I have to believe they've spent more money on focus grouping than probably 100 lawyers piled together and they've learned something that very basic visual support carries more weight with the jury than something more elaborate real pictures and yeah, I, I, not I, that you, we've got to tell a story so of course we need the pictures but i'm saying there is something to this simplicity no i i totally agree i'm getting almost all the way there myself so let, let's talk about these have a car crash case how are you going to go about we got the file you've never done anything in the case now well, hopefully most of the lawyers have worked up the cases, but I'm sure like myself, there are many cases that you may try where you haven't been involved in the case. So you're starting with this box of documents and depots and photos, and you're gonna have to say, tell this jury why they should be for your client. How do you go about doing that? Well, first thing is I have, tell me the story, and I take notes, and then I say, tell me the defense favorite facts, give me the list. And then I start plowing through the file myself because you can't you can't just get a cheat sheet from someone else. As you know, you got to ingrain it into your own soul and get connected to the story. So I start doing it myself. And then there's a back and forth. I have the emails back and forth with the lawyer. I've got a question a minute and we just keep doing it till I feel comfortable. We've got the story. And then you start designing. And I have really a once I now know the case, I have really a three step process for for a winning opening statement, because I believe in systems. It's to stand here and tell you a war story, you can go, wow, that was impressive, but I don't know if I'm helping you much. Systems, little ABC, here's what you do, is something that is reusable um, by the most, the largest number of people. So that's really part of what's made my book popular, is it's a reusable systems. And my system for opening is really just three basic things. Take that list, and again, we all know how to design a winning opening statement. I'm talking about the piece where while I'm telling my story from the high ground of my story, I'm destroying their story. Not I'm going to tell mine and at the end I'm going to go, wham, 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 let me tell you what's wrong, what they're going to say, because now you've lost the high ground. It's building into your story how to take theirs down. And there are three steps to it. A, if I can eliminate the bad facts, I do. And I'll, I'll give you an example tied into car crash. Um, if I can't, then I own it. And I'll give a brief example of how to own it in a car crash. And last, put it in context, but not the old, they're going to tell you, but. Because the minute you say, but, the jury goes, here comes an excuse. 
and you say, and they're going to tell you this, but, and you do about three of them, they say your case isn't worth a damn. So it is a different kind of in context where what we're really doing by a little bit of a setup and our tone and a pause in the right place is the jury will be loud and clear. You're not making an excuse. You're telling that jury they're about to tell you some bullshit and I'm going to protect you from it. So those are the really the, the three basic steps. And if you want, we can talk through a, how would they apply an example of the car crash? Give us an example for, for right. sure. We, we get a car crash case and um, let's take your typical kind of stuff in it. I got a client who was hit by a big tractor trailer, but at a slow speed. So you There's got not a lot of visible property damage. You got low impact. You got, let's just hypothetically pre-existing conditions. Big pre-existing conditions. Those are, and, and a gap in treatment. Let's throw that in. Those well, okay, I, I, I got something for all of that. Yeah. All right, let's so, talk. talk all right, so let's, and let's do one more thing. One more. The pre-existing is mostly in the back. The person aggravated their back, but had a bad back before. They didn't have a neck problem. Now they got a brand new herniated disc. And that's the fact. All right. All right. Let's start with what can we eliminate? Well, I can eliminate the low back. I got a doctor says it's aggravated, but you know what? I got 20 years of just a mess with the back. And what's the defense's opening gonna look like? All the back. One record after another, after another about the back. And the, you, no one gives a damn, how do you get to full justice so long as you get there? So what do you do? I don't tell the defense. I love surprising them with it. But we stand up an opening and say, look, you're going to hear my client had a lot of problems with back before. You're also going to hear the doctor will say that was aggravated in a meaningful, significant way by this crash. And under the law, we can seek fair result from you for the losses of the back. But you know what? We're not going to do that because it's complicated. And I want to simplify your job so we can get to the justice. And the justice of the matter is my client had no problem with her neck before, and she's now got a very serious problem with the neck. They've got a right to talk about that back till the cows come home. I just ask you this, because I don't want to waste your time. Every time they talk about the back, just remember, well, that lawyer just said they're not going to pursue one penny over the back. So why are we talking about it? and see if they won't move forward to the neck because there've been no problems with the neck. So that's an example of the eliminating stage. We readjusted a bit and just taken something off the playing field to shrink the target they can shoot at and maximize our strength. So we now, that's an example of eliminate. Now, how about own it? Remember we talked about an 80,000 pound tractor trailer hit somebody, but there's not a lot of visible property damage. And I don't say low impact. I will to you talking here in private, not in front of a jury, because that means it wouldn't hurt a flea. I say not a lot of visible property damage because everyone's had experiences where they put their car in the shop, they say it's fixed, but it never runs right after the crash. There's more there than meets the eye. So not a lot of visible property damage. We got the word in place. Then, and this is a real life example. In looking at the case, uh, by the way, here's a little tidbit, always look at the repair bill, you'd be surprised how many times there'll be a little entry that says, you know, $200 and it'll say on the rack. Well, that means they had to straighten the damn metal frame. So in this case, the lawyer came to me and said, here's one of the defense favorite facts. 
it was an 80, 80, the 80,000, it was, here was the defense favorite fact. Our own expert agreed the crash was at five miles an hour before he was deposed. I said, well, pull him. We don't need him to validate five miles an hour, for God's sake. So we're stuck with five miles an hour. So here's an example of owning it. I thought about it. And I thought, I really believe our client's hurt. And if she's hurt, then what is wrong? Why are we still right, even though it was only five miles an hour? And it came to me. And this is how it, the rationale of it came to me, I'll explain. But here's how it played out with the jury. At the tail end of opening, I say, to make matters worse, that 80,000 pound tractor trailer fully loaded packed such a wallop that at a mere five miles an hour, it bent the metal frame on my client's car. Imagine what it did to her spine. Now, true story. They didn't, the other lawyer was very good and he realized we had owned it. We had owned it because I, when I thought about it, I realized it's only part of the equation. The force is not all speed, it's speed plus mass. That's what comes to the impact. And I thought a middle linebacker hitting me is not gonna be the same as a toddler hitting me at five miles an hour. So suddenly they realized we were using that five miles an hour to show that monster truck, bam, would bend a metal frame on the car at that mere speed. They literally didn't call, they didn't mention an opening five, nor did they call their, their accident reconstructionist. We just took it. So that, now you've seen how to eliminate, now you've seen how to own it by thinking if, what, if they're right on the speed, but we're right overall, why? And you just keep working the problem when you figured the aha moment came to me was it's only part of the equation. And then you wrap it around the word, the, the right words. At a mere five miles an hour, it bent the metal frame in the car because it was packing such a while last piece of it. Now here's the fact I can't get rid of, can't eliminate it. Number two, I can't own it because you can't own them all and you can't eliminate them all, but I can put every damn one of them in context. So let's take the in context side of this subjective. And the defense says, this is purely objective. I'm sorry, purely subjective. It's all just what this person, you have to accept their word, their hurt and you tell them in the in-context side. You say, now I'm about to sit up down. I'm not gonna be able to get back up, but I know what they're gonna say. And we all know in life, it is important that things be put, not be taken out of context if we're serious about the business of getting to the truth of the matter. In a courtroom, it's doubly important that things be put in context. So I wanna to talk to you about a few things before I sit down, because I won't get to talk to you again. The defense is gonna tell you, suggest to you that my client's injury is all proven up by what's called subjective complaints. You just gotta take her word for it. Well, now let me put that in context. Now, the way you say it, that little pause, if I said, now let me put that in context, everybody's gonna, here comes a bullshit excuse. If you say, let me put that in context, in the next one, let me put that, and I look at the defense, in context too, they, it's loud and clear. You just told them about how important it is that things not be taken out of context. 
and the little bit of pause and the little bit of Tabasco on your tongue, everybody, you're communicating, not an excuse. They're about to trick you. So how do you do it with the, the, the subjective? Now, let me put that in context. First of all, subjective just means that's what you tell a doctor. Well, people get treated all over America based on what they tell their doctor. But they'll tell you this isn't a lawsuit. So that's all suspicious and different. Well, let's put that in context. There is a doctor who laid hands on and felt muscle spasms that you can't fake. Everyone's going to agree her family doctor, and then the neurosurgeon who operated, laid hands on and felt those muscle spasms that can't be faked, but also cut inside, put one of those magnifying things with a loop that goes around their head with a bright light and looked in there during the surgery, the only person to see inside my client and saw that nerve squished. And when he cut it, he saw it unsquish and the symptoms burning down her legs or burning down her arms went away. So I ask you this, folks, since we have independent validation from this doctor, why are we still talking about subjective? So that, and you can do that with gaps in treatment, you can do it with letters of protection, you can do it all down the line, but that's the system. Eliminate if you can, own it if you can, and if you can't, Put the damn thing in context so they don't get a free shot. Because if you don't, the other side's going to say, well, there, buddy, I thought you had a good case. You had me going there for a while. When were you going to tell me about that? And since you didn't, you must not have an answer. So that's the system of how to take everything from them and leave them nothing to hit you with. So when you're done and they're done, you're ahead. And you feel good. And you feel good. All right, a couple quick questions. We, we covered some great information. Timing. I have people say to me, no lawyer, no matter how difficult the case is, should give an opening statement for more than an hour. What do you say? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, I'm a talker. I like long. I think long's a mistake most of the time. I think there's uh, jurors are overwhelmed with information. All those studies that say, look, they watch TV and you see the whole show and four affairs and two divorces and five trials in an hour long TV show with commercials. And now here you are going to talk for an hour and a half in opening statement. I think there is absolute truth to that. I struggle with it in a complicated case where I got a lot of stuff to tell and I believe so deeply we got to win at the beginning. I end up erring on the side of I've done two hour, two and a half hour opening. However, the tobacco case, how long? Yeah, very complicated tobacco cases. In your typical case, I think you ought to try to power it down in 30 minutes, so long as they're powered down too, because here's something never forget. I have to remind myself of this, because I fall into the trap of wanting more time. If you shorten your time, you're shortening their time. So there's less they can do to you too. So I do think over an hour is getting into I don't but know on, if it's but on a complicated, significant, whether it be uh, product liability, tobacco, maybe malpractice, where you've got yeah. to explain a lot of the medicine and the treatment, you're you're going to go another half an hour, hour or more, until you, you feel comfortable. You you will. I do. Um, even though I do not ignore 
the warnings against it. And here's here's why. Everybody, I know you know it, and I think everybody listening knows it, but it's worth a reminder. We have to build something. All they're doing is tearing it down. It's quick and easy to tear down something. But when you have to build it, it takes time. It takes longer. And, and once you start, it's not like, okay, but I'm going to build it as soon as we get to the witnesses. The problem is that's such a jagged building. One witness here, the, the one you wanted to come second suddenly can't come, and he's three days later. And it's this patchwork that can get smushy and lost, and confusion is our enemy and their friend. So the only way I know we're going to have a clear start is to make it clear an opening. And the more complicated the case, the longer it is. So I violate that rule all the time. I do it with trepidation, but it's a risk benefit. Okay. I got to get this story out so they got it. And if they're a little bored, if they start to glaze over a little, you react. So be it. I'd rather not than confusion. I'm I'm curious. How about you? On your complicated, you don't do anything. No, I I try to keep it under an hour. Now I've gone for three hours, but I try to really keep it you know shorter. I'm getting away more from the PowerPoints. I like black screens. I like looking people in the eye. You know, one thing I like to do is I'm giving the opening as I go point by point, making eye contact and looking right at specific jurors as I go down my point. So let me get back to another point, which I was told when I'm a young lawyer playing floor, if you don't get objections for arguing an opening statement, you're not doing a good job. What do you say to that? Correct? Yeah. <laughs> or you but, say, well, say the evidence will show. <laughs> yeah. I will say this. I've said this a hundred times. I'll say it since you brought it up. If I'm about to argue my ass off, I bring my voice down a little and I say the evidence will show. And I have some pure evidence will show without arguing ready at the tail end. And I, my, here's how I think a perfect opening is. I want to hear the defense lawyer's chair squeaking over and over, getting ready to object, and I want to thwart his objection most times out so that he's miserable, but he can't quite figure out where and when to come swing at me because I say, and I make an argument. And another thing the evidence is going to show, you bring your voice down. Their guard goes down. They think, well, he dropped down. He's not ramped up. This must not be very exciting. And you said the evidence, and by the time they go – Damn it, that was argument. Then I say, and something else the evidence can show, and it really the doctor's gonna say. And they've lost it. But hell yes, if he, if you're giving a if you're not pushing the envelope, you're not advocating an opening, in my opinion. You know, I, I agree that to an extent, but I'm more and more trying to be a little more neutral in jury selection too. Because I think the jurors, when you get in there, they're still suspicious of you. Yeah. And if you're getting, and depending on your judge, if you got a judge that's going to sustain those objections, that hurts. Then you're, you're starting part. off looking like, well, this dude's like pushing it too much. Yeah. So I you got to know what your environment. You're always going to argue, but I think. Again, it's a weighing and a balancing test and deciding what environment you're in. Do you really need to do that? A lot of times I like to let it go when I know I'm going to kill them. Yep. I like to take it slow and let the jury figure it out and not just hand it all to them. You said something I've heard from my wife for many years. She was a 
court reporter for 25 years, very smart, very good, paid attention. And I remember she was court reporting me early on in my career. I had a full head of damn hair and didn't look all beat up like this. And she, <laughs> I would, I delivered the first, and she was the prettiest thing I'd ever seen. And I'm, I'm just so wanted, want her to be so proud of my opening. And I delivered an opening that was hellfire and damnation. And I walked over to her on a break. I didn't even know her. I said, How, how'd you like that? Expecting her to go, ooh. She goes, too much, too early. And I thought, <laughs> God almighty. It's like I've been slapped in the face. She's right. Too much, too early. That I have toned my demeanor down because at the end of the day, what Brian, you're talking about is we've got to be the guide to the truth that they think is a reliable guide. And the more we raise utter hell, the more we look like what they expect and the more we bring it down and the more we're rational, the more likely they're going to connect. I can listen to this guy. So while I still argue, if you listen to my overall tone, I am so low and somber now in opening as opposed to, let me tell you what else. And I do that some on the camera because it feels fun waving and raising hell because it's who I'm a street fighter. It's what I want to do. But I have bored down, toned down my openings to the point I've lost some of the fun of opening. But I, I, my wife was right, and now all these years later, I, the parish is confirming it. I, I agree, and I, I am finding myself toning it down in demeanor or tone, but letting it out little by little and not putting it all out. Because I get bored, too. I got ADD. I'm sitting there. I'm a, I already heard all this. Why is he telling me that again? What, what are we going to hear? The same thing. He already told us all that. I want him to be thinking every day they're bringing something new and this is going to be good. I want to pay attention. It's not the same thing over and over and over. And one thing we hear from jurors, lawyers ask the same question over and over. And yep. they, they're like, they think we're dumb. We, we get it. Yep. So I I'm, get people in, I get people in these U, UM cases, uninsured motorist in Florida. We're allowed to say that's his own insurance company. What we're not allowed to do is say, he's been paying premiums all these years and now they won't pay. And I always tell lawyers, I said, you know, we treat sometimes, we think jurors, we got to say everything right in their face or they won't get it. And they're smart. All you got to do is say, that's his own insurance company. They'll fill in the other they people. They got it. Well, listen, this is great. We're out of time. Make sure you go to trial guides and get, please don't eat the band. The day, I keep saying it. Don't eat the Those damn daisies. Don't eat the bruises. Well, I said it because a friend of mine's mom used to be in that show. You know what the day bruises are? Defense favorite facts. Don't chomp into them blindly. For God's sake, pair them out or eat you around. Go to trial guys and go to there and get the Keith Mitnick video while you're driving in your Tesla. You can listen to Keith Mitnick because he's listening to do it on his Tesla. All right. Thank hey, you. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. All the best. Have a good night. All right. Take care.